We are on Lord's Day 15, the suffering, what I entitle the suffering servant. So if you have your book, you will see we're going to do questions 37, 38, and 39, and at least touch upon those as we go through. We are in Heidelberg Catechism, but we are just discussing and looking at the Apostles' Creed. We've looked at the first section, I believe in God the Father. Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. We are now in the second section dealing with the Son, Jesus. And then eventually when we get finished with this section, we go on to the third section, which is the Holy Spirit. And things we don't normally put with the Spirit, but which are part of him, the communion of saints, resurrection of the body, life everlasting, and a few others. And so this is how the Apostles' Creed goes in this section. In Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell and sits on, and ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. You notice what happens in the Apostles' Creed. It goes from womb to tomb. It almost totally bypasses the life of Jesus, his ministry. You hear he's born of the Virgin Mary, and the next thing you know, he's talking about suffering. There is one caveat there about it where it, in, the, uh, in the Creed, when it says, what do you understand by the word suffered? where it said all, that all the time he lived on earth, but especially at the end of his life, he bore in body and soul the wrath of God. And in one way, this is keeping with the Gospels. There are 89 chapters in the four Gospels. 30 of them deal with the last week of Jesus' life. Put it in another perspective. If he was about 33 years of age when he died, that's 1,700 weeks of living and it only deals most a third of the gospels deal with one out of those 1700 weeks why because that is a crucial part of his life that is with that is that which to some degree not totally but to some degree is the basis of our salvation and our work the scripture i want to begin with is from isaiah 53 very familiar one, probably because it's uh, referred to many times. It's one of four servant passages in Isaiah, where Isaiah is showing who the Messiah is in four different ways. This is the last of the four, and he talks about the suffering servant. Behold, in chapter 52, 13, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be lifted and high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard they understood or understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. 
He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. See, Isaiah 53 offers us this picture. His early years were like a sprout that came out of dry ground. I don't know how your plants are doing. We only got some rain the other day, and there was a period when there wasn't much rain. But usually that's a period when things don't grow very well. That's the image. He grew well, even though he came out of dry ground. He was despised and re rejected by his own creation. Imagine that. Imagine if you're in wood shop and you start making something and if you're like me, by the time you get to the end, it's all ruined. So you put a couple cuts in it and say, well, it's, a, it's an ashtray. It's supposed to be a shoebox, but it's an ashtray, <laughs> okay? And then that thing comes alive and goes, I don't like you. I don't want you. I don't want to be in your collection of horrible things. That's how Jesus was dealt with by his own creation. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. The people hid their faces from him. You know, we usually look in, in, in the pictures and in movie pictures, we show these great crowds around him. And there were great crowds around him. But you know, when he started teaching the deeper truth of the word of God, they hid their faces from him. They looked away. They didn't want any part of him. And he bore our grief. He carried our sorrows. He was bowed down by the weight, not of himself, but of our sins, is the way that Isaiah puts it. Smitten by God. That's the idea that he was stabbed pierced, beaten, chastised. Why? It was for us. For we, like sheep, have gone astray, each to his own way. But the Lord laid upon him the iniquity of us all. That's the picture of Jesus in his suffering. So the catechism moves from the womb through that period in a very short sentence to that section where he talks about Jesus' sufferings. So question 37. What do you understand by the word suffered? And here we get right into the core of the Christian faith. He suffered in our place for our sins, that we might go free. He is the one who is captive to our sins, that we may be freed from our sins. And that makes us different from every other religion. Every other religion in the world says you must do something to make your God pleased with you. 
If you're Mohammed, you have to follow the law. If you're Jewish, you have to follow the law. If you're Hindu, you just you have to live a good life because who knows what you're going to come back at afterwards. You're always trying to please, do things to please him. Christianity says it's all done. It was done for you. You're not pleasing your father to make him love you. He loves you, and therefore you want to please him. Totally different concept. And the suffering of Christ is the scandal that makes that possible. 1 Corinthians uh, 1, 22 to 25, Paul talks about how to the Greek it is a scandal. That their God, that their, the God, the plethora of gods they had would ever suffer for the sake of human beings is is abnormal, not abnormal. It is. It's horrible. And to the Jews, it was scandalous as well. How could our God come and do that which we ought to be doing for him? So, the, the uh, catechism answers that question. It says that all the time he lived on earth, and especially at the end of his life, he bore in body and soul the wrath of God against the sin of the world, of the whole human race, in order that by his suffering, as the only atoning sacrifice, he might redeem our body and soul from everlasting damnation and obtain for us the grace of God, righteousness, and eternal life. There's that little phrase, all the time he lived on earth was a time of suffering. Now, I enjoy the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke shows a joyous Jesus laughing, fooling around with his disciples. And there was a movie that came out years ago called Jesus, which was a uh, portrait of the Gospel of Luke. And it showed him, you know, going, come on, Peter, let's go, wrestling with his disciples. Because that's, that's the kind of guy he was. However, at the same time, he was suffering on our behalf. We call this the active passion of Christ. Uh, Ursinus, who's the chief author of the catechism, puts in his commentary seven ways in which Christ suffered in his life. One, he gave up the joys of heaven. You think about this, in eternity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit sitting around the table just laughing and enjoying one another because joy is part of love. And they gloried in who each was, was, and was. And when they had put together the plan of salvation, we, we talk that way, they do it simultaneously, but we have to talk that way because we're space-time people. When they put it together, they go, oh, wow, what a neat way to do it. Nobody will ever want to believe us. And the Spirit says, I'll make them. But they're rejoicing. And he becomes human and that's gone. Think of the praise. They create the first angels before they create anything else we normally understood. That was part of the first creation. And all the angels do is give him praise all the time. And all of a sudden he's a human and the praise is gone. They worship him. There's absolute freedom that he has now being God in human flesh, he is bound up in a body. 
he too was nine days old, having to be nursed and cared for. Mary, and I hope Joseph had to change his diaper because <laughs> he was messy. The freedom is gone. That was part of his suffering. To leave that which he knew from all eternity to come and live in the midst of who we are. Secondly, experience the infirmities of our nation, our nature. Well, he doesn't experience the infirmities of our nation, but that's a different subject. <laughs> he became like one of us. He entered into a world of sin and suffering. Think about it. Before the incarnation, he was in a perfect society, a perfect place of pure bliss and joy, of no sin, of purity. And now he comes into a into a place where babies cry when you're trying to talk. <laughs> That's okay. My first sermon, I had three babies crying with us, so don't worry about it. The, uh, he's, he's into a place that has fallen from what they had created it to be. And he has to deal in experience with the sin he only knew from outside. He's learning the, imagine, imagine, I'd, it was two years old when he went from Egypt back to Nazareth or somewhere in there, maybe a little later. But he's asking his mom and dad, why did we, why were we down in Egypt? He's two years old, he understood they were not in the country. And Mary and Joseph have to look at him and say, well, Herod the Great wanted to kill you. And therefore we were told to leave Bethlehem go down to Egypt so, you, so Israel could come out of Egypt. Well, what happened? Well, Herod sent his henchmen. They killed the children of Bethlehem trying to kill you. Now think about that. Six-year-old all of a sudden realizing there are kids who died for me. And all of a sudden he is in the midst suffering evil around him. He'd see it time and time again. His little brothers and sisters, when they would do something rotten, and they may have done something rotten to him because nobody likes the perfect big brother. And he had to endure it and suffer for it. All of a sudden, sin becomes real to him in a way that it would not have been if he had remained in heaven. He also knew deprivations and poverty. Hunger, thirst, tiredness. He, there was always hanging over him the sense that the cross awaits him. I think from the very beginning he understood that the cross was going to be his end. There's a uh, portrait painting uh, that I've, I've seen and uh, it's of a woodworker's shop. And there's a man and there's a little baby on the floor. The sun comes into the window and it shines across uh, over the baby as a shadow, which is a great way to, to picture this. The cross was always before him. He knew this is where he's going to go. And any time he went down to Jerusalem and he saw people crucified on the road, he, he could look at it and say, someday that's going to be me the agony of it, always behind. 
in the background. You look at your own family history of a medical history, and you know you have in your family heart problems, cancer, all sorts of diseases, and you think, is that going to be me? Am I going to die because my heart erupts or because I have cancer? Because that's the family history. That's what Jesus suffered through the whole time. He endured, number four, he endured insults, treachery, slander, blasphemies, rejection, contempt of his own creation, which ought to worship him. He came to his own creation, and his own creation knew him not. Yeah, I, 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 I picture him in with the, the tri, his trial with the Jewish leaders. And they are trump, trumping trump up uh, charges against him. And nobody can get a good witness that he did anything wrong. And he's looking at him saying, you know, I created you people. And this is how you handle me. I made you, I know you inside and out. I knew you when you were in your mother's womb being formed and put together. I gave you the DNA that you are operating. And this is how you treat me? See, that's part of the suffering. Part of the suffering was having to do with his disciples. It took a long time for them to really begin to understand who he was. And he keeps saying, oh, men of little faith, bring the child to me. Look at me. See who I am. And little by little, it begins to register. But he, you know, he's saying, can't you understand it? Even our passage says that that which was not has been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understood. It took a lot of work. And even at the end, the disciples are sitting there arguing, who's going to be the greatest? Who gets to sit on his right hand and who gets to sit on the left hand? Who gets to have the best seat in town? And he's going, whoa, are you kidding? Then he faced temptations from Satan. Of course, we know the big one like in Matthew 4 where he was out 40 days in the wilderness and then Satan came to tempt him in three ways with, uh, with three powerful uh, areas of life. But all the time, he was being thwarted by Satan. He'd walk up into a crowd and there would be a person who was possessed by a demon who would cry out and interrupt his talk and interrupt who he was. And would, and sometimes um, it seems almost lash out at him because they say, who are you? We know who you are. And he'd have to deal with him right then. All this time, and he's doing it for th all those years. He's underneath that yoke. And that's his act of passion. Why? So that he may live under the wrath of God to live righteously as our substitute in order that we, he would apply the righteousness of his own life to us who believe. Again, we are never in, in and of ourselves righteous before God. It is only because the righteousness of Christ in all those years of living is applied to us. And that's what God sees. 
take away that, and when he looks at us, he would go, no, 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 there's nothing good about them. No, not one. That's what Jesus was doing. And then you get to his passive passion, that is, things he allowed to occur in order that he might go to the cross. He died a shameful, painful death. He was convicted a felon, even though he had done nothing wrong. And despite arts, artists and others, he died naked. They took away his clothes. We're too modest. We don't want to show the waste of Jesus. But he, when you hung on a cross, you hung naked. And that was part of the shame. Back in that culture, you didn't let people see your body. We went to the beach. You can't help us see bodies there. Here, when you were unclothed, that was shameful. And he was there, the Son of God, being shamed, wrongfully accused, bearing upon himself the wrath of God. Some of you probably have seen the passion of Christ. I have a friend who saw it and said, there's too much blood. No human being can give that much blood. He didn't like that, but he said, what it does show is the pain that he went through. And again, we paint nice little pictures about him that make it look painful, but it doesn't even begin to describe the pain that he had. As you know, I'm, I'm looking for a knee operation in about nine days. Yes. And the pain is sometimes difficult. That's just my knee. His whole body was racked with pain. And not only the pain, physical pain, but the weightiness of the wrath of God upon him. Bearing him down. Almost pushing him down. And, and during those six hours, and I think it's six hours on the cross, and he experienced the bitter anguish of the soul as one who is accursed. Now, this is not just a tragic hero who went even though he didn't deserve it, which is part of some of the members of churches look at it that way. Just a tragedy that, that a man like this would have to go through crucifixion. Now, he bore the eternal wrath of God, not just a little time, but the eternal wrath of God in those six hours. That is weight incomparable. It's beyond any pain we can suffer. What's the, what's the theological word for it? I remember this. We have a, a vocabulary as Christians we have to learn. You remember it? Oh, I got to go over this again. <laughs> Propitiation. Sear that into your conscience and your mind. Propitiation. That he would bear that wrath. And again, for himself? No. He didn't deserve the wrath of God. He hadn't done anything wrong. It was for us, for what we have done. And the thing is, all this suffering, both during his lifetime and during the, the uh, Holy Week, and especially the cross, it was voluntary. 
He didn't have to do it. We deserve it, which is what Isaiah 53 talks about. He did it because he wanted to do it for us. Okay. Also, this section shows the historical character of Christ, that he is somebody who is not simply one who is a superhero, the Avengers, <laughs> Iron Man. He is a real person, not a myth. And he had the credentials of, to do this. I also notice in this question the, uh, the twin body-soul that the, the uh, catechism talks about, how it says he bore in body and soul the wrath of God. And then you go down that he might redeem our body and soul from everlasting damnation. And in this they are showing very well the Hebrew idea of humanity. Instead of the Greek idea where we are a soul that's encapsulated in a body and the, the closer the better we can get rid of this body, the more holy and better our soul will be. The Hebrew idea was from the dust of the earth, breathed into life, and you became a nephesh, a living being. Or actually it says a living soul. So we talk about soul, body, and, uh, and spirit. Well, it's body and spirit together that makes the soul. And it's the two together. That's what makes death so difficult. Because death is the separation of the body and the, soul, and the spirit. It makes what the resurrection so wonderful because it's the rejoining of the body and the spirit. So once again, we are a living nephesh, a living soul. And that's completeness. That's why you can have your body in perfect shape, but if your soul is not right with God, your life is all messed up. Because it's the soul or the spirit that makes the two holy before God. Those two put together. So then we come to a puzzling problem statement where it says in the question and the answer, the wrath of God against the sin of the whole human race. And the question then becomes, what does the whole human race mean? Well, some will take a look at this as that obviously it means that he suffered, his suffering is equally applied to all people for the whole human race. And sometimes we talk about that the suffering is sufficient for all human beings, but efficient for only the called. Well, that's not quite accurate. Think about it. Think, think about what that means. If he paid the penalty for all people's sins, every individual's sins, upon what does God judge anyone? They're all paid for. He can't bring those sins back out and say, this, look at what you've done. They're all paid for. They're taken out of the equation. Therefore, you have a God who cannot judge and must save everyone. We call that universalism. And it's obvious because of where they come from that that's not what they mean, universalism. That Jesus died for every particular individual in the world. That's how it's sometimes expressed in modern evangelicalism. 
But it's not what it means. What he's talking about is that he experienced the same wrath that all would experience except they come to Christ and his passion is applied to them. He experienced the same wrath that the unbeliever would. But for those who, as he said, he might redeem our body and soul, it is from everlasting damnation. And again, think of that word, those words. It's not just damnation. That is, you get to be punished for a little while, and then you're set free. This is, that's the idea of purgatory. It's everlasting. You'll never get out. There is no relief. Think about the people you personally know who do have, have no faith in Jesus Christ. That's their future. Go to the mall, watch people walk around enjoying buying things and having fun and doing all the things they do at the mall. And look at each one of them and say, this is what they deserve. Everlasting pain, suffering. The same kind of grief that Jesus bore on the cross will be given to them and it will never, ever let up. See, in our day and age, we don't talk about that much. Come to Jesus. He's got a wonderful plan for your life. Follow these four spiritual laws and he will give you joy and peace. And for the rest of you, eh, you may not have a full, the fullness of life that Christians have, but afterwards, we're not going to tell you what happens. <laughs> okay. We have in America uh, justification by death. That is, when you die, you are justified by God, no matter whether you believed in Christ or not. That is common modern-day evangelicalism. It's universalism. That's not what the creed says. It's not what the scripture says. It's not what the catechism says. Everlasting damnation. Somewhere in your Christian life, you should have a period of time where you really contemplate that. And you really think, what is it like as if you were on fire for eternity? And then you begin to see, this is what Jesus has saved me from. See, that makes salvation real. That brings it home. And the Christian who does not have that may be a Christian, but may never really have thought through the implications of the gospel and the cross. That's what it is. The, the value of the sacrifice is absolutely infinite. That is, it's, the application is for those whom God has called. And again, let me remind you of this little acronym, total depravity. That's TULIP. So Reformed Christians tiptoe through the tulips, and sometimes we really do just tiptoe through them. We don't want to hit them too hard. But that means that every area is tainted. Your mind is not what it's meant to be. Your heart is not focused on God. Your will is not to do that which God has called you to. 
your body is, de is deteriorating because of the fall. And we saw this when we looked at the fall in uh, the, the catechism. The next one, unconditional election. And this is God's grace. That God did not choose you for anything he saw in and of you or by what you've done, but merely out of his good pleasure. Unconditionally. He didn't look down the corridor of times and say, ooh, there's Charlie. Charlie looks like he's doing good things. I think I will save him. He gave grace to the ones whom he wanted and chose. We saw this when we talked about the adoption as children of God versus the sonship of Christ being a natural child. Our adoption is because of that unconditional election. And then limited atonement or probably a better word Particular redemption. That is, the cross was only beneficial for those whom God had elected unconditionally. Uh, this is where modern day evangelicals, especially American evangelicals, really begin to. Uh, uh, begin to cry out and squirm and saying, how could it only be limited? Well, I, again, if he died for the sins of everybody, everybody's rescued. Even Hitler, who gave no sign of ever coming to faith in Christ. Even the people in countries that they've never heard the gospel. Shame on us, it hasn't happened. But uh, gospel, they're saved. Even those who follow religions that are counter to Christianity. They're saved. If Christ died for every person on earth. Limited atonement means particular redemption. Christ had particular people in mind when he went to the cross. And it was for their sins, yours and mine, if you're a believer in Christ, for which he died. And that is what keeps universalism away, but it's also what the, the cross is all about. He accomplished our salvation. That it's a difference between two phrases. Christ died so that sinners might come to him. And the second phrase, Christ died for sinners. The second phrase is modern evangelicalism. Christ died for saviors. The first one is Reformed Biblical Christianity. Christ died so that sinners might come to him. The reason it's particular is it not that you are maybe savable, that he might give you salvation. It is that you are saved. And he rescued you there on the cross 2,000 years ago. Let me put this uh, 49 years ago, 
I was a counselor up in a camp in the Allegheny Mountains. We had just heard that Armstrong had walked on the moon. In fact, yesterday, I think, was the 49th anniversary of that walk. A little bit later, I'd been reading the New Testament, and I always, had always appreciated Jesus, and I knew about Jesus, but I began to like Jesus as I read through the New Testament. And then there came a night when I not only just liked him, I loved him. And something changed within me that I wanted to surrender my life to him. So I went around the lake to a cross, knelt down at the cross, because I could kneel at that time. Knelt down at the cross, surrendered my life to Christ, and it has been a change. Now, modern evangelicalism says, well, that's when you were saved. No, biblical Christianity says, no. I was saved from eternity. When God put together his plan and unconditionally elected me to be one of those his people. I was saved at the cross where he died for each and every sin of mine, past, present, and the one yet to come. Not, not the one, the ones yet to come. <laughs> All of them he died for. And I was saved in the sense my life was trans was changed by the Holy Spirit and what I hated and what I was blinded to and what I rebelled against now became the, the love of my life, the person of Christ and what he's done for me and for you who believe. And finally, I will be saved. And that is at, the, at his return and his resurrection. All of that is because his salvation is a particular salvation. It is for individual people for whom he purposely died. And again, I know I'm touching sacred ground because some of us have been raised with the idea that Christ died for everyone and therefore everybody is savable. No. Let me show you why this is so important for evangelism. You go out to talk to somebody in evangelism. And if he, the best you have is Christ died for sinners, you have no idea whether or not that person is ever going to respond. It may be a waste of time. But if you believe that Christ died so the sinners might come to him, they may not come then and you may only be a part of a process in their salvation. One of the seven to eight times they have to hear the gospel. As the statisticians tell us. But when you tell somebody that they, Christ died for them. That is the opportunity for them to move toward their salvation. And if they are one of those particular people, it will operate. It will be put by the Spirit in here and in here, and eventually the Spirit will make it come alive. That's what we call the first resurrection from spiritual death to spiritual life. In that, that's the great hope you have. You know, you look at somebody with that first idea and you say, well, they may or they may not. 
But you look at somebody who may have been particularly died for by Christ and you say, yes, something's happening for them. Something's taking place. This has been the great rally cry in support to missionaries. I've heard of missionaries who've been out in the field for 30 years, not one convert. You know, we think if we go out for three weeks and don't have a convert, this is horrible. Imagine spending your whole ministry life, not one convert. But they are consistently doing this because they know that God has called them to that place and God has people whom he wants to save and therefore they will tell them the gospel because there are people with whom the Spirit is going to work. And then after that 30 years, they leave and somebody else comes and all of a sudden, boom, there's this huge explosion of conversions. It's built upon that idea that we are not just savable, we are saved. And therefore, we just need to hear the gospel and respond to it. That's the basis of hope, the hope we have in ourselves and in every believer. And that's what you have to remember about this. That's what the catechism is telling us. Christ has died for a particular people. And they will be saved. That's the eye of tulip and the pea of tulip which we will get to later on as we go through the catechism. This is a teaser. Come on back. Okay. Question 39. Is there anything more in his having been crucified than if he had suffered some other death? Yes, for thereby I am assured that he took upon himself the curse which laid upon me because the death of the cross was accursed of God. Uh, one of my favorite teachers is R.C. Sproul. And he made the statement once, and he made it a few times. Would a drop, a single drop of Jesus' blood be efficacious to save God's people? I mean, the shedding of blood, there is a remission of sin. So if he had just pricked his finger and that blood had dropped, would that have been enough? And of course his answer is no. It wasn't a single drop. It was as we celebrate here when we come to communion. We come to the table and we look at the body that was sacrificed and the blood that was shed on our behalf. And it is that death on the cross by which he was accursed and therefore he saved us. Uh, and one of the passages that's used is Galatians three thirteen to 14. That cursed is everyone who hangs from a tree. A quote from Deuteronomy 21, which is in the midst of the covenant with with God, the blessings and the cursings with Israel. And it's a reminder that if you have committed capital offenses, you were to die by hanging or being impaled upon a pole or upon a tree. And that was your punishment. And it's a reminder to us that every sin that we commit is a capital punishment before God. And that is ours. But when Christ hung upon that cross, he was taking our cursedness upon himself. And it moves into the whole covenant idea of blessing and cursing. That you are blessed if you obey God and he will give you great things. You are cursed if you disobey God and he takes everything away from you. Christ being cursed took away 
everything from us so that we might be blessed and be given everything that we have. Therefore, Paul talks about the inheritance we have. And Peter talks about the inheritance that we have from God through Christ. And that he indeed has uh, paid for it all. Imagine again the cross and the profound intimacy that the Father and the Son had had from all eternity is interrupted, disrupted on that cross because he bore our sins. But because he bore all that sins, he can give to us all the blessings that God has in store for us th through him. And the last part of that it was that remind, it reminds us that the cross was done outside the city by unclean Gentiles. It's one of the reasons why the Apostles' Creed says he suffered under Pontius Pilate, wants to make sure that this is a historical event and that it was commanded by a Gentile governor, a Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, who had, had his arm twisted by the Jewish leaders. And so both the government and the religious leadership had put Christ to death, and not one party or the other, both of them put together. And because of that, it's not just a great tragedy. It is a way in which God worked for us to be rescued from our sins. But it was outside the city. Sometimes we miss, we read that, and we said he went outside the city, just like the scapegoat in the Old Testament had hands laid upon him, the sins of the people confessed, and then was taken outside of the city to be left out in the wilderness. So was Christ. Forsaken by God, uh, the sacrifice, and everything that goes with that. And, and in there becomes a settlement between two warring part parties, between us and God. The settlement is done outside by the cross, and it's done by the active and passive passion of Jesus. Therein hangs your salvation. It's not that you answered a call to pray. It's not that you went down an aisle or a sawdust trail. It's not that you necessarily wrestled, just wrestled with God about who you are and what you are. It's not that you were looking for a better life. It's because Christ died for you. And in dying for you, took away the wrath of God, propitiation, to be able to give you the blessings of God, life and life eternal. It doesn't matter on the words that you use when you come to him. What matters is that the Spirit has changed your heart and you have a new life. That's the evidence of your faith. And where you were blind, now you see. Where you hated, now you loved. Where you walked in darkness, now you love his word and his spirit more than anything else in the world. And you desire, even though you do it poorly, you desire to walk after him. That's your salvation. And that's what the creed is taking, getting, getting at. We despised him, but he died for us. 
the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Let's pray. Our Father, such a simple act in one way, and yet so complex. In some ways a simple life, and yet a very complex life. In some ways a simple faith, and yet a complex faith. And the deeper we go in it, Lord, to know your love, to know Jesus, to know our salvation, the more we are astounded at what you would do on our behalf. We like sheep have turned astray, but you have called us back to yourself. We at times rebel against you, but you gather us back into the fold. Father, we are in awe of who you are and what you would do for us. And that you would send Christ specifically to die on the cross for we who believe. We pray for those who do not believe as of now. That your spirit would work to convict, convert, and help them to confess Jesus Christ is Lord. And for we who do believe, that you would give us the power to unleash and to live with all the blessings that you have given to us in your son Jesus Christ by his life, death, and resurrection. For we offer ourselves in his precious name and all of God's people said, amen. amen.